The reading today is from Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your harvest right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather for the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord. Fear your God. I am the Lord. You, sh- you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Thank you, Becca. And thank you all for being here. Let's, uh, let's bow and pray. Let's Lord bless our time in this word. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth, that the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord and our rock. And our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it's kind of uncertain times right now, right? And I'm not just talking about the uncertainty that happened last night with Peter and Hannah Ann and Madison. Although, y'all, that stressed me out. I'm just like serious anxiety after last night. But I'm not talking about that, about that uncertainty in Peter's horrible uncertainty in his relationships. But what I'm really talking about is um, the uncertainty of like, what's going to happen with our school? What's going to happen with our plans? What's, I, mean, it's, I was talking to Chrissy, it's the weirdest thing. We, we are so used to having certainty, even with our schedules, you know, of our vacations that we're going to have, or weddings that we're going to go to, or graduations, and all these things. And it's, it feels disruptive, right? To not have certainty. What do we do when times are uncertain? And that is the question. What do we do? What's our mission? And it's, I really don't think it's an accident that this is the passage that God had planned for us um, to cover tonight. And um, because it, the people that we have been studying... These people who are God's people, Israel, in the book of Leviticus, who've been going through it this whole semester, and they are living in very uncertain times. They've been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. They've seen God miraculously free them from their oppressors, but they are not yet in the promised land, and they've been wandering around for years. They're going to wander for 40 years. And times are uncertain, and God is coming to them, and he's explaining to them their mission during uncertain times. In fact, their mission, even once they get into Canaan, what they are going to do. 
God is going to give them a mission. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. What is this holy mission that God gives to Israel? And what does it mean for you and me? The mission is really clear. Look at verse 2. He says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And look, we hear that word holy, and that sounds like a church word, and we just kind of go, holy, boring. That's a boring word. It makes me think of church clothes and pews. My son, Owen, I saw him earlier. The thing he probably hates the most in the world, church clothes. Anything with collars and long sleeves, he's out. But that's what we think of, I think, when we think of the word holy. But when you get a glimpse of what God's holiness looks like, even in, in like Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah gets to peer into what God's holy, holy, holy throne room looks like, it is not boring. It is shaking, and it's light, and it's sound. God's holiness is not boring, but it is our mission. So what is it? Well, holiness means to be set apart. One of the only, really the only thing that's said three times in succession about God is that he is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart from us. He's different from us. And he calls his people here to be holy. And he calls anyone who's following him to be holy. And sometimes when I think of, okay, so set apart, does that mean, I guess that means we're going to thrive during this coronavirus thing because we're going to be like socially distanced from people. We're going to be far away. We're going to do lots of hand washing. That sounds like a holy person. But I want you to see that holiness does not equal isolation or removal from others. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God's people are set apart, not from others. They are set apart for others. That is why we are set apart. We are set apart for others. God rescues Israel. And before he gives them the law, I want you to remember, we've talked about this many, many times. Before he gives them the law, he rescues them. Grace precedes law. And he gives them the law after the rescue. And what does he tell them about their identity? Listen to what he says. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. That's their identity. They're going to go and every single one of them, man, woman, child, is going to be as a priest to the watching world to show them this is what God is like. This is who he's like. And I want you to to think about where God sends them. Where does he send his holy nation? If, whole, if, if holiness was about being set apart from others, he could have sent them to some really remote, fertile island where they would never have to leave, never have to be bothered. They could be their own little holy huddle, right? We even have a term for that, holy huddle. They could have gone to like Madagascar and just been God's little holy nation on this tiny island and no one would ever bother them. But that is not where God sends them. Where he locates his holy people, this is really significant, is Canaan, which is at that day the most ethnically diverse and the most densely populated place on the planet. And that is not by mistake because God is taking his holy people and he's putting them in the midst of the nations for the nations. And then he explains to them what his holiness is going to look like. And he gives them really specific examples that we're going to that we're going to look at here that Becca read for us. And then he sums them up this way. This is holiness. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is that we would love others because that's who God is. 
He is love. And you and I bear his image. And what that means is what you and I were made for fundamentally is to know the love of God and to love others out of the overflow of his love for us. You're made for relationships. That's why you think about relationships all the time. You do. It's okay. I do too. We all do. We're made for it. It's in our DNA. We're made for relationships. But there are enemies to this mission of love that we find. And this isn't exhaustive, but a couple that I think we can take from this text. One enemy of our mission to love others is a misunderstanding of our identity. Because I think oftentimes, instead of understanding ourselves as a kingdom of priests, we think of ourselves, Christians, I'm talking to you, we oftentimes think of ourselves as a kingdom of possessors instead of a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of possessors rather than a kingdom of priests. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, we, we, we get very individualistic with the way that we think about our mission. That our mission is kind of about getting something, and then once we get it, we're done. And if any, if any of you have ever played a video game, you know that this is not the best mission to have, to get something and then be done. Okay, so confession, I got really addicted to one of Owen's iPad games, Alto's Adventure. Any fans out there? Nobody. Wow. Okay, I play nine-year-old boy games. Okay, anyway, it's, you guys should check it out. It's really fun, but you're basically this snowboarder, and you're leveling up the whole time, and you're getting better and better snowboards, and you get faster and faster characters, and you can jump higher and higher, you can flip faster and faster, and there's all of these benchmarks that you're trying to get, and once you get to level 50, the benchmarks are super hard, and Chris was really annoyed with how much I was playing in bed, and I understand she had a right to be annoyed, but I finally beat it, and I unlocked like the uber character who does everything amazing. But you know what happened after I did that? I stopped playing. It wasn't fun anymore. I kind of got it. I did it. I got the thing that I was going for. I leveled up. I got past all the bosses or whatever. And then it was over and it was done. And I think that that's how many Christians think about their salvation. That they're possessors of their salvation. And what that means is... If, you're a king, if we're a kingdom of possessors, all, all the, the story of like your participation in God's work is that you would just get saved and then chill. You really don't have much to do. There's not much mission in your life. If, if it's just about you getting saved and then waiting, you kind of got your get out of hell free card, and you kind of wait around until you die, what is your life? And I, y'all, for many, many years... I thought that this, that was kind of Christianity, but we're, we're somehow supposed to also be good, I guess. But like, why? Like, I'm going to heaven already because I'm saved by grace through faith. All of that is true. And you hear us preach that at RUF all the time, that we're saved by grace through faith. But here's the thing. We are not just saved from something. We are saved for something. We are set apart for something. We are set apart for participating in God's mission to the world. God is going to reach people through his people. And if Christianity to you is just about sitting back and kind of enjoying yourself, and it's about you, you're missing it. We're not saved for our own good, but we're saved for the good of our neighbor. And that's what we see here with Israel. They're saved from Egypt, but they are saved for the good of the nations that they are going to go and live in the midst of. I think another enemy of 
of this mission to love, though, that we have is our self-centeredness. And all of us are self-centered. Every single one of us. Can I give you an example? I want you to think really hard. Who is the person that you've thought about the most today? Do you want to know who mine is? You're looking at him. Hello, me. I thought about myself the most. I haven't thought about y'all more than I thought about myself. Are you kidding me? Me. And that's, and that's what we all do. We're so concerned with our own good and our own selves. And God knows this about us. And he knows this about his people. And think about these people, they've been, they have gone through some serious trauma, unimaginable trauma for us. This trauma of 400 years of slavery. And God knows the bent of their heart. It's going to be quite easy for them to, have to start worrying about themselves once they get into this promised land. After they've gotten out of this hardship to make sure we were in this place that was really insecure, but now we're going to this good place, this promised land that God's given us, and we have to make sure that we keep it. So we need to start doing things. For instance, maybe like, look at verse 9 and 10. What would be the temptation for what to do with your, har- with your harvest when you're going out to get all of the crops that you've planted and you're going out to harvest it? The temptation would be to just get everything. Get all the food, every single bit of it, gather it into your barns. Whatever we don't eat, we'll sell and we'll make profit off of it. But get it all. And what is God's law? What does he tell them to do when you go and you reap it? Leave some. And I love that he doesn't tell them how much. He says, leave it. Leave margins. And, the, and what those margins are for in your crops are for if anyone, if anyone is in need. Or if there's any foreigner among you. Here's what I want them to know about God's people. They're welcome to come into their fields and take. They're welcome to come. Do you see how this would push against our self-centeredness? Look at verse 11. Do not steal. What is stealing? It's disregarding others' interests for yourself. Verse 13. Do not oppress your neighbors. Why do we do this? Why does oppression happen? Oppression happens because people are concerned about their own good, about their own selves. And oftentimes the way, the reason that oppression persists and is able to persist is because individuals are afraid to put their necks on the line for those who are being oppressed. Martin Luther King Jr., when he wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, which I would commend to any of you to read sometime, it's absolutely incredible. But one of the things that he writes um, as he is sitting in jail in Birmingham is this, and I think it is very insightful for how oppression is allowed to persist. He says, I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner. Those aren't the biggest obstacles, he says. What is the greatest obstacle? The white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. He's more concerned with keeping things civil and order. Not, not willing, not willing to be put, to put themselves in a place of discomfort for the good of the other. Not willing to lay down their status, their reputation 
for the good of those who are being oppressed. Look at verse 15. What else does, how does this push against our self-interest? Don't give preference to the rich in court. Don't give preference to those who are great when you are making a ruling. Why do we do this? Why do we give preference to the rich and to those who are great? Because we're concerned about ourselves. We're so self-interested and disregard the plight of the poor. And I'm not talking about y'all. I'm talking about me here, too. This is me. This is our hearts. A lot of y'all came and watched uh, Just Mercy when we, uh, when we went and had a screening earlier this year. Um, it's about Brian Stevenson, who um, is a black Harvard law grad who goes down and founds the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, fighting for the rights of, um, of individuals who are on death row. And listen to what he says about our justice system. He says, we have a justice system in the U.S. that treats you much better if you're rich. And it treats you much better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. You hear how different that sounds from what God's law is, from what he wants for the poor when they're in a ruling? Stevenson goes on to write, what ultimately, you can ultimately judge the civility of a society not by how it treats the rich, the powerful, and the protected, and the highly esteemed. You can judge the civility of a society by how it treats the poor, the disfavored, and the disadvantaged. What keeps us from this? Our, our self-interest. And do you know what's at the heart of our self-interest? You know what's at the heart of my self-interest? Fear. We're so afraid we're not going to be okay. And God knows this about his people. He says, you're going to go into Canaan, you're going to go into my promised land, and you're going to be afraid that you're not okay. Fear is at the heart of our self-centeredness. John Bowlby, who is a child psychologist, he wanted to figure out what enabled children to be able to go into the complex, scary adult world and flourish. How do people, how did children develop the abilities to enter into the complicated, complex world and engage it with confidence? And what he found is it wasn't their competence, it wasn't their parents teaching them skills of how to make it or coaching them up or giving them confidence on being relentless or being winners. What children needed first and foremost in order to go out into the world and flourish was a secure, healthy attachment in a loving relationship with an adult. And in, um, in a podcast I was listening to that beautifully illustrates this, Featuring uh, Daniel Solomon. Uh, it's from This American Life. Daniel Solomon is a man, uh, when he was a boy, he lived in a Romanian orphanage for seven years. And to be more specific, he lived in a crib inside the Romanian orphanage for seven years. Only taken out of the crib whenever he needed to go to the bathroom. He never went anywhere else besides the room with the other hundred orphans that he was in or the bathroom for seven years. He was adopted by the Solomon family who lived in Ohio. When Andrew came to Ohio, he had no skills for relating to his parents. He hated them. 
He hated his mom and dad. In, in the podcast, he said that he punched over a thousand holes in the walls of his bedroom. There were multiple times that specialists were brought in to work with him, and they left bleeding from the Solomon house. He gave his mom, his mom a black eye, his mom Heidi. He gave her a black eye, and when he did, he smiled at her. He was eight years old. They had to, they had to hire a bodyguard for Heidi to be protected. And one, one day, a case manager sits down with Heidi, and he says, listen, this is what's going to happen. Daniel is going to hurt you. You will be in the hospital. Daniel will be in the juvenile detention center, and your husband's going to leave you. Heidi's response, so what are we going to do to help Daniel? Daniel became homicidal. He held a knife to his mother's neck at one point. And the interview, as he's telling this story, these stories, the interviewer from NPR just finally interrupts him and says, uh, inter- interrupts uh, Heidi, who's telling the story. And she says, Heidi, how do you love somebody who's homicidal towards you? And her answer is simply this. Because he's my son. He belongs to me. He's mine. And they had this breakthrough uh, in Daniel's therapy by doing this extreme version of attachment therapy. And this is basically what they did. She, she quit her job for three months and she went and lived right next to Daniel all the time, 24-7. Never left his side. And he wasn't allowed to ask for food or anything. Because when you're a baby, you have to learn to trust that someone's going to feed you when it's time to eat. And so she did everything for him. Fed him, cared for him, put him to bed, always there, always right next to him. If he disobeyed, instead of getting timeouts, he got time ins where he had to hug his mom. He hated it. Time in, hug, let's go. But what he had to learn was dependence. And he did it. And it changed him because he found security. The only way that we can live without fear is to have security. And I want you to see what God says over and over to his people here in Leviticus 19. And I didn't print out the whole thing because it's pretty long. He says this 16 times in Leviticus 19. I'm the Lord your God. I'm yours. I've rescued you. You're mine. You're secure. Before you can go out and start living self-sacrificially for others and lay aside your own interests, the reason that you can do that is because you're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. And this is what is so true and so good about the gospel is when we were God's enemy, kicking and screaming, laughing at him, he entered into time and space and redeemed us. And he set us apart. He set us apart for participating in his mission to bring redemption and restoration and life into this world, to bring reconciliation into this world, because that is who God is. And that is what he wants his people to bear out to the watching world. And that is your mission. Your lives are so important. Your lives are so important. And so, because we have security in God's victory and love, and because we have all the resources that we'll ever need from him, 
We are free from fear-driven self-centeredness. Free from it. You don't have to be ruled by it. And so because we are secure, we get to take up God's holy mission to love our neighbor as ourselves. This command that Jesus says is the second greatest command behind only the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. I was thinking about this. It's so, I didn't read this in any of the commentaries, but this is, take this for what you want. This is a John Trapp observation, but I think it's kind of cool. In verse 18, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, I want you to think about what was Israel like before God saved them? Do you know who they were like? They're like everyone that God is telling them to take care of in this law. Think about when Israel was in Egypt. So verse 10, God tells them, hey, take care of the poor and the foreigners among you. You know who Israel was? Poor. And foreigners living in Egypt. When God says, do not steal and do not lie, do you know, do you know what happened to Israel? They were stolen from. with Forced labor and never paid what they were owed. They were lied to. They were brought into this country to, to, and given safe haven, and then they were enslaved. Verse 13, Israel was oppressed. Their wages were kept from them, just like the day laborer that God says, you do not keep any of the wages from him. Verse 15, Israel was subjected to injustice because of their socioeconomic status. And God says, you don't do that. Here's the point. You and I are not better than the needy. We are the needy. The same is true for Israel. When you see someone who's a foreigner or who is poor or who is needy among you, here's what I want you to see, Israel. You. That was you. And I saved you. I saved you from it and I saved you for moving into others' lives who are just like you. The same is true for us, friends. The Apostle John later writes this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we, ought to, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Listen to me. This is not some political, like, social justice agenda that I'm giving you tonight. This is at the heart of God. This is not something that, like, some Christians just do because, like, if that's what you're into, like, care about the poor or whatever. How can the love of God abide in us if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him? We're set apart for being a holy people in the midst of a world that is dying and in need. And your mission is so important to bring life and restoration and peace into this world. And you know what Jesus says will, will be done when we do that? Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and think you're awesome. (laughs) Just kidding. That's not what he said. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Do you see this? Do you see how their identity, you are the light of the world, is said first about them. And then he says, now this is what you do. Let it shine before others. Identity always precedes law. Grace precedes law. And what does he tell them? What's going to happen when you go out and you live out this mission to love others? What are they going to do? They're going to see you. And it's going to point them to the Father. They're going to come to know the goodness of God through the work of his people, through the love of his people. So what does this mean for us? This command to love our neighbor as ourselves, it needs to shape things in our life. It needs to shape our repentance. Christians, it needs to shape the way that we think about what should I be asking God to forgive me for? In what ways am I failing to or ignoring opportunities to love my neighbor as myself? This command shapes who we seek out. When Jesus was asked who... Who is our neighbor, Jesus? Do you know what he said? He told a famous parable called the Good Samaritan about an ethnic minority that people in that neck of the woods despised. And Jesus says, that's your neighbor. And by the way, he's awesome. He's a good Samaritan. Go and know him and love him. There are neighbors. Seek people who are different than you to love and to serve and to befriend Go out into this campus. You see them all around us. Go out and love them. Bring the love of Christ to the places where God has put you, in the classroom, in your fraternity or sorority houses, in your clubs, wherever. We get to bring the love of Christ. This command to love our neighbor as ourselves, it shapes our prayer life. What kinds of things should we be praying for God to do if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves? If God said yes to all of your prayers, what would happen? Like if he said yes tonight to all the prayers that you've prayed today, would the world be different? How would your neighbor be? This shapes our prayers. What we want to see God to do. We can ask boldly for God to do amazing things. He is not stingy like we are. He is generous and ready to give, if we'll ask. One thing that we can be doing even now, pray that God would use his people to love their neighbor in the midst of this virus, this coronavirus pandemic. He's certainly worked through moments like this in the past, by the way, I'll have you know. God has a way of working through his people in historical moments like this. I'll give you one example. In his book, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? That's a fun title. Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's by a professor of New Testament theology at the University of Edinburgh named Larry Hurtado. One of the main reasons he said that people came to know who Jesus was is because there was an outbreak, a pandemic that hit the Roman Empire in the second and the third centuries. It wiped out 30% of the population in some places. And all of the people who had the means to get out of the city did. 
except for the Christians. The Christians stayed. And the Christians poured out love to their neighbor, who was different from them. So much so that the emperor noticed. Emperor Julian, this is not in the Bible, this is in like historical documents. He writes this to one of his priests. And he's annoyed at what the Christians are doing. He says, he calls the Christians the Galileans. It's kind of where you know, Christianity originated. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but also ours. Let us not allow others to outdo us in good works. Do you know why they're outdoing his priests in good works? Because they have the security to. Everything that they have, they already have in Christ. They're sons of the king. So they can go and they can live sacrificially. So let's pray. Pray that God would use his church, would use his people to sacrificially love in the moments that are ahead of us. You know, Rome was a place where Christians were getting seriously persecuted and then they turned around to their persecutors and they loved them. That is what's happening in China right now. Just two months ago, Pastor Wang Yi, who's a pastor of a large church in China, he was arrested and convicted and put in prison away from his wife and children. He'll be in prison for nine years. Because he's a Christian. Because he's seen as a threat by the country of China. And Christians in China right now, they are loving their neighbor. The way that we will that we will proclaim the good news of Jesus is not just with our words, it's with our deeds. And I want to encourage y'all. I want to encourage you because I see you doing this. I'm so proud of y'all. I love you guys. Like I'm y'all blow me away. I'm so proud of some of the students that I see graduate and go do all kinds of amazing stuff. We got RUF students who've got they're going and they're doing Teach for America. And they're, do, they're, they're working with the International Justice Mission to fight child sex trafficking. And they're going and doing the RUF internship and, and loving college students and freshmen. They're going and the, I have students who call me and, and say, hey, can I pay for some of your students now to go to summer conference for free? Did you know that there's alumni from your fraternities and sororities and your clubs who call me and say, let me help, let me help them go on the mission trip. Let me help them get on the bus and go to summer conference because I want them to hear what I heard. Let me pay the money. And they're giving a lot of money for y'all to do that because they love you. I'm so proud of y'all. I'm so proud of them. I can't believe what Christ is doing through you. I rejoice at that. And I want to urge you on that this is the heart of God. Don't stop. The way that the world comes to know who Christ is, is through his people. We're not set apart from the world, but set apart for the world. So Christians, regarding, you know, I don't know when I'm going to see y'all again. I mean, we're going to go on spring break. I'm like, I hope that we get to be together again um, soon. But we're kind of in a waiting period, right? So until then, here's what I want you to do, Christians. Pray. Pray for each other. Keep in touch with each other and with your friends. Pray. Pray, pray that God would equip his, his church, his people, to pour out love. 
and our resources, our money, and our time, and our effort to care for those who are in need. Stay tuned in on ways that the church, churches are responding to help and consider joining up. Also want to encourage you to listen to the God-ordained authorities in our life who have a wisdom into this situation about what's happening and to obey the civil authorities that have been put in our lives. That is a biblical Christian thing to do. And mostly Christians, here's what I want for you. Don't fear. Jesus wins. Do not be afraid. Everything that we need, we have in Christ. And that is an unshakable security. We have been set apart for love. And so go with God's strength and love your neighbor. And if you're here tonight and you're considering your faith, you're considering putting faith in Jesus, thanks for being here first. And I would ask you to consider how fragile not just our lives are, but this entire world is. And I would ask you, where is your hope? And I want you to know that there is a God who owns and rules over everything. And even though we are rebels against him, he entered into this world. He is so committed to saving people that he entered into this world, into its muck and its mire, to bring his people home. His people, the sick, to heal. The sinner, to forgive. And to reconcile to himself. And ultimately, he entered into this world to turn death against itself. We have nothing to fear if we are in Christ. Because one day, the work of Jesus, it will blot out the blight of death. And death will die. Death will die. And all will be made right. And that hope is secure. And it's offered to you tonight by grace. So put your faith in the unshakable, secure one. And then participate in his mission. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the fruit of your spirit, the first of which is love. That you would help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray that you would give us courage and faithfulness um, for the days that lie ahead. Um, that you would give us wisdom not to fear, but to trust and rest in you and in the victory that you've won for us through your life, death, and resurrection, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.